there is no price that can be put on a human body. And when we put a price on a human body and on an act so intimate as inviting someone into our bodies, that is slavery. I'm alive here today to tell you that that is the reality of the lived experience. And it's more harrowing than I ever could have imagined. Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Malvin. For those who don't know me, I'm a life coach, a hypnotist, a former birth worker, and a former liberal feminist turned radical truth teller. On this podcast, you'll learn about the ideologies, industries, and technologies attempting to control our minds and bodies, such as transgender ideology, pornography, prostitution, and the many tentacles of the medical industrial complex. Together, we'll untangle patriarchal lies as you listen to jaw-dropping interviews with women from around the world. Warning! While listening to this podcast, you might find yourself triggered or perhaps notice where you've been biting your tongue on the issues that matter most to you. In the masterclasses available on my site, as well as my one-on-one coaching and hypnosis, you will learn to stop getting triggered by every freaking thing, learn to cultivate resilience, gain knowledge, and if we're working together one-on-one, Stop unwanted behaviors and increase your self-confidence. You can book your first session and check out the masterclasses in the library at whosebodyisit.com. And I just want to say that it's because of your endless support that I'm able to interview amazing women, get their stories out, and produce regular content for you. So with that being said, please like, comment, and subscribe to my channel on YouTube. And if you're just listening in, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And consider making a financial contribution via the link in my show notes. You can also support the podcast by getting your activist stickers. So my pro-woman stickers have the power to intercept transhumanist programming. So take a photo of your stickers out in the wild and tag me on Instagram at whose body is it. Without further ado, let's get into this week's story. Olivia, we were actually at at an event together and didn't know each other at the time and then later met. (laughs) Um, And I don't remember if you were already following my account at that point or this was maybe before i don't think i was um because (laughs) i think at that time i was still really concerned about like public uh public records of me engaging in controversial or uh transparent conversation (laughs) 
Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember actually um, talking to a mutual friend about your work because I was very much interested in your work when I met you at that event or we were at the event at the same time. And, uh, and she, she told me that, uh, you noticed like she was telling you about me and that you noticed that you weren't following (laughs) and that you were like, Oh, she must just be, you know, still getting ready to be public about it. But I, I was like seriously thinking that people that I knew in other circles would look at your account and see my name as under the followed by and that I would like get in trouble you know yeah but then I you know stopped being friends with those people anyway (laughs) we've all been there we've all we've all been there it's totally relatable Um, I know a lot of women listening can certainly relate to the um the story viewing or the podcast listening before the follow uh before the yeah the before the um turf declaration or whatever we want to call Mm -hmm. it (laughs) um but before okay so before we get into kind of like how you got out of liberal feminism progressive feminism however we want to define it would you just um share first a little bit about your you know maybe your girlhood and your the way you were raised the expectations of women in your community a little bit about your background there yeah, I would love to. So my name is Olivia. I am in my early 20s. And I grew up in a pretty small town adjacent to a bigger city and was in a conservative religious environment that I have done a lot of work to heal my relationship with that community. Um, I used to be very angry and bitter about being born into that religion, but I think I've learned better how to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say, (laughs) and just take what is valuable from it. But the expectations on me were were very strict, I'd say. Um, I was homeschooled. I got really good grades. I participated in a lot of artistic activities. The expectations were pretty like, go, go, go. That being said, I think I did have more downtime than people in a public school environment. I played outside a lot. I have a lot of cousins and just had a lot of time to play and imagine. And then in my church life, I was extremely active. I got to spend a lot of time around women, girls, which I loved. Um, The religion of my upbringing which is the LDS church for more context. It has a strange relationship with women. I'll say like um, women are very revered and held to an extremely high standard. Um, But at the same time, they are not, especially when I was a child, I think things have changed a lot but um, they're not allowed to speak as much. Their authority is not as honored as men. Actually, with the church origin, the church's origins, um, women were allowed to openly perform what's called priesthood blessings. Um, In the LDS church, men are given 
the keys of the priesthood and um and and with that comes giving blessings to other people blessings of healing or inspiration revelation and women used to give those blessings to each other but then were stopped from doing that and um i was always really fascinated by that growing up i was also very fascinated by the doctrine of a heavenly mother in the lds church um which is a very it's a very close parallel with the relationship to women in general which is um it's believed and it's doctrine that we have a heavenly mother as well as a heavenly father but there's a cultural myth that the reason she's not talked about or prayed to is because heavenly father respects and reveres her so much that he keeps her sacred and commands us to be quiet about her um so that she's not blasphemed and disrespected the same way that he is which that's not church doctrine at all it's actually a cultural connotation with it and that was just always really provoking to me i had a reputation for getting in arguments with my church leaders about like women's hemlines and uh girls being turned away from activities because of what they were wearing but boys being allowed to wear like tank tops at dances and stuff and I just had a lot of questions and then I also had really wonderful female leaders who taught me to ask good questions. Then when I was in 8th grade, I started at a charter school that had like a pretty wide mix of political backgrounds leaning in some circles toward conservative, but there was also this like really liberal very strong streak of like gay pride and you know students being accepted for their quote unquote queerness and my sophomore year i realized that i'm also attracted to women and that was a hugely earth-shattering realization it just hit me that there wasn't a place for me in my religion of origin and i worried about what the place for me and my family of origin might be and i found a lot of acceptance at school um and at the same time i found a lot of criticism of my parents for not having the same perspective on it as my teachers did and, and that really was, didn't sit right with me and this was like high school yeah so okay. i started yeah in 8th grade i started there and then my sophomore year of high school i realized the same sex attraction and struggled a lot with anxiety like had horrible anxiety and um when i came out to my parents it was really hard for them of course because all of these visions and dreams that they had for my life seemed to be crumbling away and not just that but the potential for them to be with me for, for all of eternity was crumbling away because that's a really important part of of the LDS religion and so i felt really empathetic to their their sorrow and i actually had only one teacher who really encouraged me to be patient with them and i still talk to her because her advice was <laughs> fair and human and she was also the only other gay woman that i knew and so it it felt like her perspective 
really counted. She came by honestly. And, um, and then my introduction to gender ideology also came at that school, mostly through RuPaul's Drag Race. Oh, <laughs> and, gosh. Yeah. I know. I had a friend group who was like obsessed, obsessed. And it really offended me on a visceral level. And at the same time, I really wanted to fit in with my friend group. And I was really scared of their disapproval. And um, I remember telling my friends one night um, we were driving home from something. And I remember telling them, like, I really don't understand RuPaul's Drag Race. It is really offensive to me. Um, it seems like they're just performing this caricature of what they perceive womanhood as. And it's very sexist. And they say really crass and lewd things about women's anatomy and you know they refer to a drag queen that passes really well as fishy you know talking about the smell of vaginas and they blew up on me they just immediately you know started saying well you just don't understand what it's really about and all of those things when it seemed like I understood exactly what it was about <laughs> and they might have been affronted by me calling it out. Mm -hmm. And then another interaction in high school that still sticks with me is um, I had a friend who lived in Canada. We met each other on Tumblr and she was also a lesbian at the time. I totally thought that I was a lesbian. I had no interest in high school guys, understandably, but no interest. And, um, so this friend on Tumblr and I, you know, we had a crush on each other and we would send like letters and record songs for each other and things like that. And one day she posted on Tumblr, since I'm a lesbian, I wouldn't have sex with someone who has a penis. So no, I would not have sex with quote unquote trans women. And she got so much hate for it. People like sending her anonymous messages. Um, you know, calling her a transphobe and a turf. And um, she kind of came back with like, and I felt really badly for her that she felt she had to do this. She was like, I have trauma with penises. And so like, I am not only not attracted to them, but it feels traumatizing for me to interact with them. And it doesn't make me transphobic. It means I have a sexual preference. And I defended her on Tumblr. And I also got some, you know, nasty backlash. And I told a friend about it in high school and she just got really quiet. She didn't say anything. I think that in her mind, she might've also been calling me a transphobe. But yeah, that was pretty much my only interaction with that in high school. I didn't even really have a conception of it as a huge part of the gay community until I got to college. I went to a, a very liberal school and an extremely liberal city and it immediately was clear to me like you either get with this agenda or you die socially particularly in the gay community yeah like right off the bat it was everyone's pronouns and it's just a whole world that I had never interacted with before but also felt this really deeply like bone deep feeling if I don't comply with this 
then I won't have any gay friends. I won't have any gay relationships. Um, and that was really important to me. And then I uh, founded a STEM group for gay students who are in STEM because we realized that the students who had the highest rate of suicide in the gay community were also STEM students. And I was in STEM, so I founded this group. And one of the co-founders was a woman identifying as trans. Um, she had a mastectomy, was on hormones, and she made it really clear that we had to do everything we could to include trans kids. And so we took this training that was led by like a trans and trans ally group on campus where they basically trained us how to like gaslight ourselves mentally into like, if you start thinking of this person and you think of them as their biological sex, you need to like automatically correct yourself mentally, like not just verbally, but you need to stop yourself in your mental tracks and backtrack and reconceive of them as the gender that they are telling you they are. So basically training us on how to reconfigure our reality with what someone was telling us was going on. And simultaneously, there was a huge culture of sugaring at the school. And for anyone who's not familiar with that, it's basically young students, most of the time women. I've heard of male escorts, but I've I've personally never met one. Um, and sugaring, particularly websites like Seeking Arrangements, absolutely target women um, and definitely target young women who are students or, um, you know, otherwise working to live. And I knew some girls who did it. I started getting interested in it as a way to make money and, you know, was definitely very steeped within the culture of sex work is empowering and it's a way to make money while just doing something that you might do anyway. <laughs> and you can make so much money in one night, all of those things. I think I set up a seeking arrangements profile. I can't remember which came first, setting up the profile or happening to meet a man. But I think the summer after my sophomore year, I was at a gas station and I caught the eye of an older man who was also there. And um, he started talking to me and I was so naive. I don't know that I was exactly naive as much as arrogant <laughs> that I was aware of what could happen to me, but I was so arrogant that I thought that it just wouldn't happen to me. And that was definitely part of my downfall. <laughs> Even though I'm laughing, it's definitely not funny. <laughs> and um, I feel really tenderly for that, you know, 20 year old girl who was so led astray by these liberal ideologies that convince us to sell our bodies and give away our most sacred experiences of intimacy 
for the exchange of money. And, you know, I'm not a policymaker. Like I can't say what kind of policies will help women who are in these situations of prostitution and trafficking. But I can say from my lived experience, which I'll get into, that prostitution is contractual rape. Full stop. And there is no price that can be put on a human body. And when we put a price on a human body and on an act so intimate as inviting someone into our bodies, that is slavery. There's really like no two ways about it. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think like a lot of people get up in arms about statements like that, but I'm alive here today to tell you that that is the reality of the lived experience. And it's more harrowing than I ever could have imagined. So it started with that experience of meeting a man at a gas station. Um, He got my number. I gave it to him willingly. I kind of had this like coquette thing going on and honestly really relished in the attention that I got. And that's been a big wound to heal Mm. of like feeling comfortable being beautiful in public again and not feeling like I'm engaging in self-harm by doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So he invited me to spend the night with him at a spa and I did all for the measly sum of $250. Just, just to, to clarify, like, was this the first time you had accepted payment? Yes. For sex. Okay. So he, Mm -hmm. so it was clear. He was like, I want you to come to this spa and have sex with me and I will pay you $200. It wasn't even that clear, which here's the thing with that is that it usually isn't in my experience. It's, I think especially because he was a lawyer and he knew what he was doing. We got to the spa and it was one of those like men go this way, women go that way. And he just handed me like $250 cash before I went into the women's dressing room. This was before we had done anything. We had not even kissed. And and at that point, were you like thinking this was going to be a date? No, I was clear. He was much older than I was. Like I knew what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I like was really pridefully engaged in this like mm-hmm. um i'm in control like yeah exactly like i'm the one in control here he wants me i'm so desirable that you know he's like paid for us to be at this spa etc cetera, etc cetera. and i had this really like foolish pride of like being this beautiful young woman on this older man like 40s 50s on his arm Like, I remember, like, catching a few eyes of the people around us and, like, having this deeper sense of something is wrong here and they can see that something is wrong. But obviously nobody said anything. And it ended up being, like, honestly a pretty scary night. He wasn't violent, but there was one point I had, like, a few sips of a drink and 
just a few sips. And then I tried to get up and like fell to the ground. And then I remember a little bit of the early part of the night, but not much after that. I just remember waking up. And and then in hindsight, I was thinking, did he roofie me? <laughs> you know, I feel regret definitely that that wasn't the last experience for me, that I didn't take that as a warning sign of danger and do everything that I could to avoid it. But yeah, it did not end there for me. So then fast forward to the next summer, I had by this point dropped out of school. I had a really difficult experience with SSRIs at the beginning of my junior year, at the end of 2019. And it just made it entirely impossible for me to continue doing school. So I dropped out and moved back to my hometown and I was living with my aunt and uncle. And then, you know, the pandemic came around, lockdown, all of those things. And, and my relationship with my parents just collapsed entirely. It had been really strained since I dropped out of school and my behavior was certainly not helping matters. I had a really codependent relationship with cannabis and like in the wake of withdrawing from the SSRIs was still behaving pretty erratically, irresponsibly. And so I left my hometown and came back to the city that I went to college in and, you know, was looking for work, knew that I had to pay rent. My lease was about to end the lease that I had when I dropped out of school and OnlyFans was being heavily advertised at that time. This was mid 2020. And, you know, there were like girls on Instagram saying that they were making six figures a year on OnlyFans. And I thought, oh, what a great idea. I can, that'll be much safer, right? And I also got into a relationship with a woman who had an OnlyFans and she like started showing me the ropes. And I quickly became a really popular content creator. And then one day in late June, I was at a gas station again. And it just so happens that meeting both of these men was at gas stations. It wasn't like I was going to gas stations looking to solicit myself, but perhaps there is something there in the power dynamic of gas stations. I know that like, I'm, I've always been scared to be a woman alone at gas stations and maybe men pick up on that. Women are vulnerable when they're alone, pumping gas, all those things. So this was in broad daylight and a man like several years older than me noticed me, started complimenting me. And then he asked me what I do. And I said that I was an artist, I was a singer. And I liked to model too. And he told me that he was also, he was like a musician, music producer. He asked for my Instagram. I gave it to him. And we hung out once. And then I ended up telling him that I did OnlyFans. And he was extremely charismatic. 
handsome, physically fit, attractive. And he told me that he could be my manager. And he could also be a photographer and videographer and that he could even act with me in the videos. And I took it hook, line and sinker. And he <laughs> quickly, it went from him taking photos and videos of me to him having sex with me, then raping me, taking videos of it. And then pimping me out to other men that he knew. It even went so far as him taking me to another city um, to make ads online, um, stay at a motel, and meet up with another woman who was being trafficked. Um, and I really clearly remember that night. And I really vividly recall how much safer I felt with the other woman in the room and how much comfort we took in each other. We ended up like being intimate with each other under the covers while the men were sleeping in the same room because we just needed some relief, some some intimacy that felt more real. Mm. And I still like think about her and pray about her life and pray for her all the time. You know, I have no idea where she is now. And I also remember that I was just a few hours away from my parents' house and we weren't talking at that time that was definitely my choice and I felt this like soul deep ache to just call my mom and ask her to come get me and I never look back to just like have somebody who really loved me know what was going on mm -hmm. and to tell them how scared I was and how little control I had. And I didn't. I was so dissociated and I was really feeding myself the lie of this is empowering to me. Like I had those deep pains and aches, but in order to survive, I had to lie to myself. And I was also being given so much weed by the man who was pimping me out. He was also a dealer and he knew that he could keep me submissive and dissociated and have me do whatever he wanted. One, because I was scared and two, because I was drugged and dependent on him for my drug and like that's not even the worst addiction that I've encountered um, women having that they're 
that they already either had and the men who were pimping them took advantage of or the men who were pimping them started. Mm. And I honestly feel really lucky that mine was cannabis. And then we were back in the city that I was living in. And this was all wreaking havoc in my relationships. Um, you know, of course, it's so hard to witness the women that we love be submitted to abuse. And it was particularly hard on my girlfriend at the time. And then one night that involved her as well, that was my wake-up call. We decided to go out with a man that I really struggled to call him my pimp because he's not my anything. <laughs> you know, he doesn't own me. I don't own him. Um, so I usually just refer to him as the man who pimped me out. But he had introduced me to uh, a guy our age, uh, a little bit older maybe, but he had a lot of money. And the first was coming up. I knew I had to pay rent. And by this point, I was living with my girlfriend. And we met up with him, thinking that he was going to be alone. Not the man who pimped me out, but the, the man he introduced us to. And he was not alone. There was uh, another man with him who then invited more men. And um, from the moment we sat down, it was very clear that uh, one particular man that had come with him was very interested in me. And I thought, well, I'll play this to my advantage and come away with rent. Another big part of this, like, bizarre believing that I was invincible was a non-binary identity that I had, I had adopted. And I really, truly believed, like, if I'm not a man or a woman, if I'm this ambiguous third thing, then no one can touch me. And I also knew that I was really deliberately abandoning my womanhood and my solidarity with other women by choosing this. And so I, d I did that on every level. And looking back, that's really clear. But at the time, it was very unconscious. And it was more about playing more emphatically into this, like, this whole school of thought that is sex work is empowering. Having sex with lots of people is empowering. Men can be women. Women can be men. There's no such thing as biological reality. It was all connected. So I really just thought that I was invincible, that mm -hmm. I couldn't be hurt in any significant way. And so this night with this group of men, when it so clearly adversely affected my girlfriend and I saw the fear in her eyes, that's when 
it changed. That's when the penny of that situation dropped. And I knew that if I kept going down this path, then me and people that I loved were going to end up dead. And that night I went to the man who was very interested in me. I went to his car with him. Um, He became very violent the whole time I was terrified for my life. And not just mine, but the life of my girlfriend who I had left behind at the hookah lounge that we were at with the other men. And the whole time I'm just going over and over in my head, like what's happening to her? Like, are they taking her somewhere else? Am I going to come back and she'll be gone all the while I'm being raped and bitten, slapped, choked, strangled, just going so far into shock that I couldn't even say what happened when we went back to join everybody else. And he of course acted like nothing had happened. Like he kept trying to sit near me and I just wanted to get the hell out of there. And he was acting like nothing had happened. And I asked my girlfriend to go to the bathroom with me and she was upset understandably because in her eyes, her girlfriend was flirting with people in front of her with this man and had gone off to the car with him. She had no idea what had happened, even though we were there to work and quote unquote work. Was it, was she also prostituting herself? Was she, was she getting paid for sex at that point? Or was this supposed to be the first time that she was? She was, um, and she, she was doing it more in the sugaring realm. And I'll say that like the only distinction between sugaring and prostitution is, I mean, there isn't really any distinction because a lot of prostitution is now coordinated online, but with sugaring specifically, you meet men online and then you meet up in person. So she was doing that. She was actually more experienced in it than I was. When you say meet them online and then meet up in person, Mm -hmm. you also, that includes then having sex with them? Often, yeah. Yeah. Almost always, like almost, I've never heard of anyone not. (laughs) like, And I've never experienced it not leading to that because the, and this is why it's contractual rape because they're paying your rent, they're paying your groceries or they're giving you, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars per meeting. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the assumption is they own you and can do whatever they wish with you. Um, and what about women who are, you know, perhaps still pro sex work in quotes, you know, thinking, but Olivia, couldn't you just tell him what you, you know, don't want him to do? Couldn't you just have a boundary? (laughs) Couldn't you just have a boundary? Yeah. I've heard that so many times actually. Um, and that's the thing is I did, I did tell him. There were specific things that he did that when we got into the car, I said, this is what I don't do. Mm-hmm. And even if I didn't tell him, getting into a car with somebody is not carte blanche to do anything you wish. You know, um, I think that 
we view it as that women view it as that reality of like there's this reality of consent but men who are buying women who view us as sexual objects do not conceive of there's no limit to what I can do here and this man who told me that he was going to pay me never did Mm. um yeah and so why why was this just a particularly especially you know dangerous person was it man was it like the number like why did this instance signal to your girlfriend that like this was bad and like did she end up stop doing the sugaring i mean yeah like i'm just curious Mm. about what Mm -hmm. was it about this because it wasn't like she had she was under some kind of illusion that what you were doing was like Mm -hmm. really fine and then she you invite her on one of your you know quote jobs and then she's like what the fuck and then you're freaked out by her Mm -hmm. fear like she was already entrenched Mm -hmm. in the same kind of like mindset Mm -hmm. so yeah what was it what was it about this particular i mean he sounds like i mean it's it sounds like a complete nightmare from what you described you know absolutely terrifying Mm -hmm. but yeah i'm just curious about what was it just his level of violence that really kind of snapped you out of it or seeing the fear in your girlfriend and what did she see so she didn't even know fully what happened until we got home and I was able to come back into my body more and tell her what happened and she only saw that I went into the car with one you know attitude Mm -hmm. and came out of it with an like an entirely different person and she experienced like a lot of fear and confusion because I wanted to leave and I told her that, but I had so much fear about them following us home because we had taken a lift there. And so we didn't have our own (laughs) exit plan that involved, you know, a car that we could drive away. Mm -hmm. She was so confused because I was like, I want to leave. I want to leave. But then I was like, we can't leave yet because what if they follow us home? I I mean, I was a basket case. And I think seeing that really concerned her. And to answer your question of, did she stop sugaring after this? No, she didn't. She actually, um, after this experience, we broke up and we're still living together. And then she... I went home to stay with my aunt and uncle that I lived with before. I went home for two weeks after this experience. And while I was gone, she went on a date with someone that she met on seeking arrangements and had sex with him and he didn't pay her. And then she started dating him and fell in love with him. And that was excruciating to, to see and uh, live with her while that was happening. And, because I was exiting and she was still very much in it. So this experience, I think it was both seeing like how it affected her. It was more 
the reality hitting me of she could be really harmed from this, then I was just really harmed by this because I was so dissociated. Like I could not even conceive of what had just happened. And it was also the experience of being with these men that I didn't know. And I told one of the men who seemed to be like a little more human. <laughs> um, I told one of the men what happened and he was on my side and he was like, I'm going to do what I can to get you out of this. And he ended up us getting, he ended up getting us a lift home. But then he came with us. And when we got back to the apartment, my girlfriend went to go be with her friends because she was so stressed out and he tried to have sex with me. <laughs> so it was just this whole like, like no escape. No escape. Yeah. And it, and it just hit me. Like if I don't get out of this, I'm, I'm either going to kill myself or someone else is going to do it. Mm -hmm. And like, I just felt like I was losing my mind. Like the violence was pushing me into oblivion. And I just remember like laying on the bed, unable to get up, feeling so far away from my body and, and then my best friend coming and her like getting really close and asking me what I needed. And I told her that I needed my aunt to come and she came and she took me to safe, which for anybody who doesn't know, it's a organization that helps women and children experiencing domestic abuse and violence and um, they collected forensic evidence. They took photos of the bite marks and they got me set up with STI testing and a physical because they were really worried about the potential for a stroke since I had been strangled. And then they got me set up with a subset of safe called CARES and they specifically help women exit prostitution. And I was given an amazing, amazing counselor who, and I remember telling her about my like, well, I'm non-binary. <laughs> and she just really patiently, she was this like old hippie in her like late sixties, early seventies. And she just took it in stride and was like, oh, you're like teaching me things that I didn't know about what the world is like today. And oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she really patiently taught me to like hold my vulva and to speak to my cervix and, you know, like touch myself and tell myself that I wasn't going to abandon my body again. And that I would do everything in my power to make sure that nothing like that ever happened to us again. Mm. And it was a slow journey. It was a slow journey. I didn't stop seeing. I, I started exiting prostitution. Then that was the beginning of fall. And I didn't stop seeing the man who pimped me out until the beginning of December because the psychological trauma bond was so strong. And that last time that I saw him, he almost killed me. And he actually looked me in the eyes and told me 
I want you dead. And I had to completely and entirely rely on my ancestors who came to be with me in that situation and told me exactly what to say and to do to get out of there alive. And that has been something that's saved my sanity more than anything is relying on my matrilineal line on the, the mothers and the women that are in my bones who love me and who made sacrifices to create me and, you know, were with me the whole time helping me stay alive. And I learned that in order to honor myself and to honor them and other women and girls who experienced this, that I had to come home to my womanhood and I had to reclaim it. And I didn't do that on my own. Like I have a cousin who was really staunchly honest with me about her perspectives um, that are much more in the radical feminist lens. And I actually like um, lived with her for a period of time. We were both staying at my parents uh, after I stopped seeing the man who pimped me. Um, I went to stay with my parents to recover and she was also there. And I told her about some of my experiences. And one day I referred to him as my manager and my cousin was like, like, Livy, that was your pimp. <laughs> like, like that man was your pimp. He was not your manager. And then I told her about being taken to another city. And we just kind of like sat there with the realization that I was trafficked. Which I never thought that would happen to me. Like I grew up learning about it and learning about it as like you're at the mall and one day you get kidnapped or like, you know, the reality of how it happened was something that I couldn't fathom until I experienced it. And, you know, since then it's been such a battle with PTSD and wanting to be out of my body and continuing to self-medicate and then stopping self-medicating, but then like having to sit with all of the stuff that was under the self-medicating. Mm -hmm. And I also could not have done that alone. Like so many tender and unconditionally loving friends who just believed in me and still believe in me and who saw me for me mm -hmm. and not the ways that I was acting out and who really saw what I needed in order to come home to me and who just gave it to me so generously. And, you know, it was reigniting a relationship with prayer and just asking for help. Like when I thought I was going to lose my mind because of how much I wanted to crawl out of my skin, just crying out for help and, you know, like spending time with, women who are grounded in their bodies and who have been through hell and back and are there to tell me that you know they're they're waiting with open arms to tell me that there's another side and i've just experienced that again and again and like one of my biggest longest lasting hopes i feel is to offer that back 
that's why I feel really strongly about telling my story is that this happens and I cannot speak for all women who this has happened to. I can only speak for myself. And I think like the more that we're honest about what we faced, the more we can meet each other in the space of reclamation and recovery. And that I feel really strongly is part of women's work and women's spaces is telling our stories to each other as medicine. And that was another really big part of recovery for me was hearing other women's stories and actually like a huge part of it was binging this podcast called medicine stories and like getting into herbalism and becoming really good friends with plants and having them just scoop me up and Mm. and remember the lineage and birthright that is in all of our bones of working with the earth and being connected to our our true reality and the way that we're designed and not being robots or like constantly tied to the medical system and it's honestly just such a miracle that I'm alive (laughs) and I feel so so glad to be in my skin and to be where I am and that's my story oh Olivia you've come so I mean you've been through a lot in a in a very short period of time and you were always Olivia obviously right it's not like you became Olivia after but you know you were always Mm. you but yeah just what you've described and the I mean, you've consolidated it into about about an hour, but yeah, like you said, it is an absolute miracle that you're alive given what we, what we know just about mortality rates for women in, in prostitution, that you were set up, yeah, you were totally set up to die one way or the other, either, either by suicide mm-hmm. or um, by being killed by one of these guys, so... Thank you so much. And, and, you know, I, I really appreciate you, you know, kind of explaining the, 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 the background of, you know, the justification that you used throughout, you know, including the sex work is work and trans ideology. And we know that prostitution has been around, you know, but before the, you know, prevalence of, of those, you know, indoctrinating oh. our youth, however, yeah, I just think it's a really important point um, to make that you've made, which is that these ideologies make us more vulnerable to mm-hmm. exploitation, literally our, our flesh being mutilated, financial, mm-hmm. psychological, I mean, just being exploited. Well, and not just, like you said, prostitution has been around before these ideologies, but these ideologies make it a total wolf in sheep's clothing because before we, we could know, we could look mm-hmm. and see prostitution ruined that woman's life. Right. I mean, she literally used to be called ruined and now it's sold to us as this is your ticket to liberation. It's complete inversion. It's a complete. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's a blatant lie. I I have never been more shackled in my life than when I was in prostitution. Yeah. 
Oh, well, Olivia, what, you know, what is next for you? And um, are there any ways that women can find you, follow you if they want to connect? And Yeah, um, I would love that. I would love to connect with women um, in general and around this. Uh, what's next for me is being a wife and a mother, you know, having a million babies and <laughs> being happy and uh, feeling really rooted in my body. Uh, coming up, I'm going to be teaching some herbalism classes with my local church, actually of the church that I grew up in. I'm really excited for that. And then in the spring, I'll be the song circles for a women's festival and women can reach out to me on instagram if they want more information about that my instagram is livy ballard underscore and yeah i would love to connect with women i also write songs i don't post my songs on instagram because they're very precious to me and vulnerable and i'm actually getting to the point where i'm starting to write songs about this experience so i'm trying to come up with the best way to share those beyond like sitting down with my friends and singing to them in person. <laughs> um, so if people want to follow me on my Instagram for updates about that, then they're more than welcome to. Awesome. Thank you so much, Olivia. I really appreciate you telling mm -hmm. this very difficult story and, you know, rehashing the details. I think they are important for, for women to, to hear as, um, so I appreciate, yeah, you just yeah. being willing to go back, go, go back to that place and, and share, share with us. And I'm so happy Thank to you, know Isabella. you. Yeah. I'm so happy to know you too. And so glad and grateful that you're doing this work. And I will also just an honorable mention that your podcast episode of uh, the racist origins of gender ideology was one of the factors in me accepting that the reality of what happened to me was prostitution and trafficking and that was more healing than any any other perspective that i had heard thus far and i'm just really grateful to you for for doing this work even though sometimes it's scary and heavy and for giving women a conversation and a, a platform on which to speak. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'll, I'll make sure Dr. Verling knows that, that, <laughs> that her episode, that for any, everyone listening who hasn't already heard that episode, it's episode 35 with Dr. Suzanne Forbes Verling, the racist origins of gender neutral language. So I'm so glad that that had a mm. strong impact. That's exactly what, this podcast is for and it's just the gift that keeps on giving because now your episode is going to help many women I know for sure. So I hope so. It's really my prayer. Sincerely. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or family member who needs to hear this content. And if you do share it on social media, don't forget to follow and tag me at whose body is it. So until next time, 